The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, I'm Maddie Orlando. And I'm Lauren Orlando. As you probably guessed, we're sisters. And we're also co-hosts of the podcast, The Sister Diary. Every week, we let our listeners into real-life conversations like the ones that we have at home. We have an eight-year age gap, so we always have a different perspective on things, but that makes it pretty fun. We talk about navigating life, growing up on social media, and pretty much anything else that we find interesting. You can catch a new episode of The Sister Diary every Friday. I'm Dr. Deepika Chopra, the Optimism Doctor, and this is Looking Up, a place where you can expect to find raw, transparent storytelling. Listen in to learn real science-based techniques to cultivate more optimism, resiliency, and authentic joy from artists, athletes, experts, and many more. You are walking up to a podium. There is a spotlight shining bright on you, hot against your face. Your palms begin to sweat and you slowly start shaking. You try to speak, but nothing comes out. You are aware of your body, but it feels weird. Your breath becomes shallow, your mind races, and you go blank altogether. Maybe you feel embarrassed and humiliated, maybe even a little like an imposter. Your self-judgment is harsh, and you go into panic mode. You worked hard. You know you were prepared. I would go out on a limb to say this scenario probably sounds familiar to many of you and might be considered a worst fear for some. You are not incompetent. You are not without skill. And no, you are not going crazy. This is performance anxiety, often referred to as stage fright. And guess what? It's actually pretty common. From public speaking to taking a swing at home plate, a shot from the free throw line, singing during a play, giving a lecture, or teaching a workshop on Zoom, even having a conversation at an intimate dinner party. We have all experienced varying levels of this type of anxiety. Do you ever wonder how elite athletes and musicians deal with their stage fright? I do. According to a survey of more than 2,000 professional musicians conducted by the International Conference of Symphony and Opera Musicians, the largest sample to date, 24% suffered from stage fright. 13% reported acute anxiety, and 17% reported depression. I am so excited about today's guest on Looking Up, Dr. Don Green, a peak performance psychologist who has taught his comprehensive approach at Juilliard, the Los Angeles Opera, the New World Symphony, and even the U.S. Olympic Training Program. His students have been awarded prestigious positions with the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, New York Philharmonic, and received gold Olympic medals during his work with them. He is the author of eight books, including Audition Success, Fight Your Fear and Win, and Performance Success. In 2017, Dr. Green was named a TED Educator, and his video, How to Practice Effectively for Just About Anything, went viral, receiving over 31 million views. I'm not surprised, because amongst being so talented and skilled at what he does, He is just about the most interesting person I have ever interviewed. You'll see. So before we jump into the meat of this, which I'm so excited about, how Looking Up starts off is we have a little section I like to call Looking In, and it's just a series of very easy, rapid-fire questions that help me and the listeners get to know you a little bit intimately. I like to think of it as sort of like evening the playing field so that people that do know you maybe more professionally get a little glimpse as to who Dr. Don Green is. 
And for people that don't know you, they get to learn a little bit more. So don't think too much about it. Just whatever comes to mind. Is there a book that you've read that has changed the way that you actually live your life? Conversations with God. People think I'm blank, but I'm actually blank. People don't think I get nervous. (laughs) I get nervous Mm, a lot. Yes. (laughs) That is a really good one. Mm. I am an optimism doctor and my whole life is about helping people increase optimism and resiliency. And people often assume I am the most optimistic person on the planet. And I always start off everything saying I'm an optimism doctor and I'm not the most optimistic person. (laughs) You know, one one of my favorite books was Martin Seligman. Yeah, obviously. Required reading. (laughs) Yes. Father of positive psychology. Done so much. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, I I love, I I definitely utilize so much of of him and his work in my work. And it was, I, I was so happy that when I started in my work, that there was something even there because there wasn't much. And I'm so no. excited to talk to you all about this because you were pr- probably such a big part of this. But the most I found when I was writing my dissertation on things that were applicable were from sports psychology. Yeah. It was where everything kind of was. Okay. Three words to describe yourself as a teenager in your high school years. As a teenager. Yeah. Fun, fun great athlete. Uh, mm. Thought a lot about things. <laughs> I love that. Okay. And the last time that you cried? Oh, just the other day. Just, I cry a lot. Same. It's very, it's very healing. I did a lot of grief counseling after 9-11 and I learned how healthy and healing grieving is. Yeah. I remember going after a few days, well, a couple of weeks, we were in Owen, Jersey City, Merrill Lynch, and I was giving lectures on the grieving process and please go home and cry. You need to cry. And about a week later, the British traders came to me and said, Don, I got to talk to you. I'm going blooming nuts. <laughs> and I said, what's going on? I said, I'm losing my mind. I can't make, I can't think. I said, have you cried? No, we're British. We stiff up a lip. We don't cry. I said, go home, put on maybe Frank Sinatra or whatever. Bridge over troubled waters. I yes. cry immediately. And I said, please, wow. please go home and cry. Grieve. Come back the next day. Don, I'm well. Thanks, man. <laughs> I mean, it's almost like it's like a pressure cooker and we need to let some of that out. Otherwise we bottle up. That's why it's in our system. Yes. Yes. I love that that was one of your prescriptions. Oh, and very so much powerful. so. Yeah. I love that idea of looking at something like crying as a tool that we possess. It's absolutely. a absolutely, Absolutely. That, that unfortunately too many men don't make use of. Yes, absolutely. Okay. The last one, three things that have brought you joy or made you happy today. Uh, I just had a, a really good hour and a half presentation to a group of percussionists in LA Ooh. by a really cool. top teacher. I heard from a, a really good friend that I haven't talked to in a long time and, and actually an old girlfriend that I haven't talked to in years. And it reminded me of all the joy we did have when I was so young. This is when I was at West Point and she really helped me get through West Point. <laughs> and the third thing that's bringing me joy today is this. I'm glad we could do this. Is I, I really enjoy this. I am in deep quarantine. Oh, yeah. This, this is my only contact really with the world and to meet somebody to talk to. It's, it's, Wonderful. Thank you. I feel the same way. I'm actually someone that has been deemed high risk. So I have been deep in the quarantine too. But knowing myself, even if I wasn't deemed as that, I would have been one of those that were more on the 
cautious and careful quarantine side generally. So I'm generally not cautious. I'm a risk taker. <laughs> I'm a thrill seeker. I've gotten really conservative. <laughs> Do you want, you want to hear a story? Yes, please tell me a story. <laughs> so I went to West Point for four years and all through West Point, you hear this story about ranger school, ranger training. And the first couple of years, you think people are exaggerating that it couldn't be that right. bad. But most of the instructors, West Point graduates, you have the honor codes. And after years and years of hearing this story, you think, oh, my God, this is going to be terrible. So I volunteered to go through a paratrooper training because I always want to jump out of planes. And it's fun. Because you're a thrill seeker. <laughs> <laughs> I used to dive platform in wow. college. Yeah. I love it. I can't even jump into a cold body of water. <laughs> Like a pool. <laughs> well, I can't either. Well, I can't either. I don't like cool water. <laughs> so after uh, airborne school, we went to ranger school, which is 58 days of pure torture. And and if you drop out of anything, any hand-to-hand combat, knife fighting, mm-hmm. obstacle courses, you're wow. done. You're done. And as an officer, if if you drop out, that's the end of your career. You'll never make it past captain. And it ruins your career and they send you to the worst possible places. Wow. So, so the first part is that in Columbus, Georgia, it was September, it was hot and humid. And you start out every morning about five o'clock. And the first thing you do is go through this hellacious obstacle course, crawl through mud under barbed wire, you go through ponds. You, it's terrible, half an hour torture. And you're covered in sawdust and all that. And then you start out on a run with combat boots, which are now very heavy because they're all wet, and a rifle, which is about seven, eight pounds. Every day you start out on this one mile run and it's on a black top and it's in combat boots and, and you had people screaming at you and all. And, and each day they increase it. So the last day is five miles. And I had never run more than a mile in my life. Every year at West Point, they timed us for the mile and my time was just barely enough to get by. So the last day is five miles. And it's like every step, you come on, you can do it. You can still, come on, you can do it. I know I can do it. I know I can do it. The self-talk, telling yourself. The optimism. The resilience. one negative yeah. word, you're out. So we, we see in the distance, the barracks, like, oh my God, if I, it's only, you know, a half a mile. I can make it. I can take the boots off. I can take a shower. I can have breakfast. Visualizing all the things at the finish line. It helps. So we get to the finish line and we're there and says, oh, oh. they gave us canteens, you know, it's just pouring water on ourselves. And out comes a new cadre of sergeants and they're all uh-huh. fresh. They didn't go on the run. They say, oh, you guys are wussies. You guys aren't real rangers. Hold your rifles over your head. You real rangers? Yeah. No, you're not. Yes, we are. Yes, you're tough. Yeah, you're tough. No, you're not. Yes, we are. You want to go again? Yeah. <laughs> they made you do it again? Yeah. Oh, my God. Another five miles. Another five miles. No breakfast after the obstacle wow. course. And within 100 yards, guys drop like oh. flies. Wow. After, that's it. And one of the guys, one of the sergeants would come over and pull out, you're done. And you never saw that guy again. That's the end of his wow. career. So out we went. And optimism got me through that. And I don't know how I managed to do it. I, I blanked it all out. <laughs> it's probably so painful. But I finished and I learned, again, if you keep your mind on the right side, the poor guys that said, oh, I can't do this, Right. down. What if I don't down? 
And I never, ever, ever had anything but just keep. I can do it. And what I learned is there's always more there. That's what I learned. There's more in the tank. Yes. When you think there's absolutely nothing, there's more there. Well, I am so interested to know your backstory. And for people that are listening that don't know, the tidbits I know are that you are a peak performance psychologist and you've worked with Olympians and the Olympic diving team and Juilliard and the most amazing musicians and performers. And there's so much with that. I'm so excited about learning. I just found out you're an athlete too. You were an athlete, a diver. So I would love to know your backstory and how this all started. Who, who's Don Green? Where did he come from? Yeah, who is Doug? <laughs> uh, I grew up on Long Island at age seven. I started on trampoline and I had a really good coach and I love being on trampoline. You couldn't get me off it. I was just like, kids like jumping yes. on beds. Nothing like learning how to j- really yeah. jump and not get yelled at. And before long, I, I had incredible spatial awareness, kinesthetic ability. Uh, he was my coach for two years. Uh, and then I switched to diving and I found it really easy at first. And it was, to me, it was safer than gymnastics because uh, a trampoline, but because by then a couple of people had killed themselves on the wow. trampoline with severe back injuries yeah. on their head. And the water was, the water to me, especially a low board, was safe. And I wasn't doing really tough dives. And if you hit the water wrong, it's okay. So I, after, well, after two years of trampoline, after a year of diving, I won the New York City Championship. Wow. For my age group. Wow. I dove really well through high school with this great coach. I swam butterfly, played water polo. I was a B plus student. I was more interested in the mind than math. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't very disciplined as a kid. Mm-hmm. I was kind of free will and happy go lucky, enjoyed life. I wasn't in a classroom that serious. And so I'm in West Point. You didn't know what you were getting yourself into. I was the first in my class to join the Green Berets. And when I was a Green Beret, I was selected to go through special agents training in the Army Criminal Investigation Division, which is what I did. I I went through special agents training and I really enjoyed it. And they sent me to the military district Washington uh, as a rookie agent. Wow. And I'd always been a a fan of detective movies. And then here I am in civilian clothes in the Army, carrying a 38 and a badge. And uh, it was really cool. And because I was a new kid on the block and no, nobody knew me, they soon sent me undercover, which I always kind of like <laughs> thought of. <laughs> so uh, the first thing was, this was during Vietnam and uh, Walter Reed Hospital, the soldiers were coming back wounded in severe pain in the pain unit. And they were asking for pain medication and getting a shot. And 10 minutes later, they were asking for mm. more pain medication. So the CID sent my partner and I in to while I faked a back injury. I had an orthopedic surgeon teach me how to fake a back injury so I could go in the hospital every day and lay and have them put hot packs on my back and buy as many drugs as I could. Wow. <laughs> so after two months under the cover operation, which had never been done before in the Army, my partner and I called in the troops and we arrested 30 people, mostly in the pharmacy. Wow. And since it had not been done before, the Army decided, well, let's try it out another place. Let's go to Fort Dix because they were bringing heroin from Vietnam and selling to the soldiers. So we 
He gave us a souped-up Corvette, uh, a van, uh, illegal weapons to carry. So if we got caught, they're, they're not police weapons. They're illegal weapons from the crime lab with the serial number scratched off. And we did another major undercover operation, found out the military police were the ones bringing it in. And we arrested about 25 then. And then they sent us to Fort Belvoir to do exactly the same thing, which we did. And then I spent the last six months in the Army. I, 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 share, I, I went to have work every day with long hair and a beard and blue jeans. And after that, I just spent the time in a court-martial, testifying court-martial's case, but I was wearing an Army captain's uniform. Wow. And these, these people that I'd been tight right. with. Had like, no idea. You're, you're, you're a captain? Are you kidding me? You're a captain? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and, and I... Uh, so I spent the last six months, and then I got an offer to work for the governor of Illinois doing political corruption investigations. You couldn't find a better state to find political corruption. <laughs> so I did that for a year, and then I, I took the test for the San Diego District Attorney's Office. They were hiring one invest, or two, two investigators, and I always wanted to live in San Diego. I wanted to live at the beach all my life. I wanted to get to California. Yeah. Now I could. So I, I went out, and I took the written test. Any job interviews, I, I, I said, let me take the test. I, I think I'll do pretty well and give me the interview. And they agreed to, to interview me, but 700 police officers signed up for the test. Border Patrol, Customs, DAs, Sheriffs, Marshals, and it's huge, it's like the SAT right. for this test. And I, I didn't know California law that well, and it's, so I had to bone up on that, which I did. And I came out first in the test. I came out wow. second in the interview. So I went back and quit my job, moved to San Diego, got a place on the beach waiting to get my job. <laughs> so I'm on the beach playing beach volleyball all day. I've got money saved up from the army. I know I'm going to get this job sometime. I'm having the first vacation of my life. Yeah. Beach volleyball all day. I was surfing. Surf, beach volleyball. That's, that was my, my volleyball. Dream. Oh, my God. <laughs> my, my volleyball partner is a professor at UCSD. He's got his PhD in psychic self-regulation. Mm. He got it in Russia. I said, what the hell is that? He says, controlling internal body states. I said, you can do that? He says, that's, that's what you do. He's like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> but he's my partner. He's an old guy, old white hair and a beard, probably much younger than I am now. <laughs> and he's pretty good. So we're playing two-man, we're playing, and we got knocked out of a game. So we sit down and watching the guys who just beat us. His name is Dr. Al. And I see this guy, the ball comes in real easy and he just, just, just goes far away. I mean, he misses it. I said, Dr. Al, did you see that? He said, yeah. I said, you know why he missed? He said, of course. I said, why? He holds up his hand. Hold, hold on. He goes to his apartment, which is right next to mine on the beach, comes down and gives me a book. He says, read this. It's a book on consciousness. I never heard of consciousness. There's no books on consciousness at West Point. Right. <laughs> I, I stayed up all night reading this book. I never stayed up reading a book all night in my life. I go back to him the next day. I said, I got to talk to you. I, I got He said, hold up. <laughs> That's another book. <laughs> Stay up again all night. And oh my God, this is the information I've been waiting for. Why athletes, you know, don't focus. Why I was erratic. Right. Next day, same thing. So after a week, I've gone through seven books. The Power of the Mind, Consciousness, uh, Alpha Thinking, The Power of Alpha, just amazing books. And I said... I've got to write a book about this. He said, do it. So I've been living at the beach, girls, volleyball, softballs, surfing, 
I didn't want it anymore. I, I took out my typewriter that from my detective days. I fortunately knew how to type. And mm-hmm. I, I started trying to capture this. Wow. And after a month, it was just more confusing than ever. All of a sudden, I didn't want to be at the beach. I wanted to finish this. I moved out of there to the semi-desert in a one-bedroom cabin. I put up whiteboards all around, and I wrote until I fell asleep. When I woke up, I wrote. Wow. Each chapter was on it. And I was getting close, but I was running out of money. I had to start looking for a job. I wound up taking a job as an assistant PE teacher at a grammar school, third and fifth grade. It's the best job I ever had. Oh, my God. (laughs) And I started teaching the kids about what I was writing about. Wow. You know, a kid would miss a ball. He said, ah, I said, hey, take it easy. And we'd play softball or volleyball. And then we'd go back to the classroom and process it. And I teach them and the kids were open to it. I was trying to describe it to adults at this time. They told me I'm nuts because I didn't really have it all, you know. And the and they say, yeah, yeah. And we go out and they play better the next day. And it was amazing. And it's the best job I ever had for eight months until the principal called me in one day and said, the DA's office is on the line. I said, DA's office? What what did I do? It was so far removed. Right. And they said, the job is opened up. You still want it? I said, I don't know, except it paid four times what I got. I didn't have a car. I had a car, gave me a gun, gave me a badge, and I started working there. Soon after that, I started a couple regular jobs in general crimes because I was the only other person in the whole office with a master's degree in forensic science other than the chief. They assigned me to the forensic psychology section. So they signed me to, to the forensic psychology section, which I thought was really cool. Diminished capacity, not guilty by reason of insanity, cult killing, some bizarre murder cases. So they did send me to the most menial office. I was now in family support, tracking down deadbeat dads who'd been behind on their family support. So I had enough of it. So I heard that there was this school in town that had a forensic science program. And I contacted the head and I had an interview with him. And he said, uh, we have a course coming up in three weeks on terrorism and counterterrorism. Mm. Can, you, can you teach it? He said, of course I can teach it. I'm a former Green Beret, West Point. Right. I can't teach. I don't know. <laughs> <you're right. laughs> I could do anything. <laughs> well, part of it. I have three part, weeks to learn it. Part of it, I never studied so hard in my life, not even my master's degree. Part of it is based on revolutionary warfare. And that was my major at West Point. It's all is small unit tactics. And that's what Green Berets do. So I, I knew enough to fake it the first couple. But I went home. I took the next two weeks off from my job. And I bought every book on terrorism and every article. And I got enough for the first class. And I stayed up in the second. And after that, they, they offered me the job as chairman of the department. The guy who was in charge didn't have a degree in forensic science. He was a criminologist, knew nothing about it. So I revamped the whole, I stopped the DA's office. I revamped the whole program. And and I had been looking to get a PhD in forensic psychology, but the school I went to had looked at had a degree in sports psychology. I thought, oh, I'm home safe. So while you were teaching, you also got your PhD in sports psychology. That's how I paid my way through. In San Diego. Yes, but I had done counterterrorism training for the SWAT team in San Diego. And I was looking for a dissertation topic and not the usual longitudinal, you know, give war shocks to everybody. 
And I talked to my mentor, who's a sports psychologist, and I said, the SWAT team owes me a favor. And he said, ask him if you can use them for your dissertation. And they said, yes. Oh, First wow. and only time ever before. Wow. And it, it was a beautiful experiment. I could collect all the data in one day. I, I, I taught half of them how to center. And the other half, that's my main strategy. And the other's not. And then, and then I sent them through a move and shoot course where they have to run first, people yelling at them, then in live ammunition, some officers loaded their live ammunition while they were centering. And then a maze of targets, Hollywood front, five pairs of targets, pop-ups. One was a guy with a machine gun, one was a woman carrying groceries. And the idea is shoot the bad guy, not the woman, right. and then move on to the next one. And the officers I taught how to center performed significantly better in terms of judgment and target selection they shot less innocence. Wow. The FBI national SWAT team, it went out on wire services. It was really famous. Went out and the FBI national SWAT team said, can you train our team? Uh, at the same time, I got the offer to work with the Olympic diving team. <laughs> okay. So at this point, your dissertation topic with the SWAT team, which had never been allowed before, you did your topic on how beneficial tools of centering were the enhancement and performance of police SWAT officers involved in stress shooting. The entire police force needs that right now. I know. So at the same time as that, you also got the offer to work with the Olympic diving team and you were a driver. So can you tell me about some of the tools that you used during your time training the Olympic divers and how a story or an example of how you trained one of your divers and you saw how beneficial it was that something you taught that you could see actually, I'm sure all of them benefited from your tools. I'll but. be happy to give you an example. One of the divers I started with was Michelle Mitchell, who had not been a good college diver at a Arizona, which is not a great diving school. Sorry, Michelle. Uh, <laughs> she eventually became the coach. She was on her way to law school. She had been accepted. Both of her parents were attorneys. And that's very left brain and left brain doesn't make the best athletes. She's highly intelligent, but she's really had a lot of inner strength and fortitude, like amazing woman. But she never really won anything. She qualified for the trials. She and I hit it off. This was a team, the team had Greg Luganis, Michelle Mitchell, Wendy Weiland, national champions. We had the best team going into the trials, but she was not a favorite. But she and I really hit it off and worked on focus, worked on goal setting, worked on building courage, worked on not hesitating. She went and won the Olympic trials, went to the 84 games and got a silver medal. Wow. The Chinese women came in first and third and Michelle was not happy about it. And we went back into training intensely and she came up with a new dive. It was an inward three and a half tuck. And this is where you go around, turn around on the platform put your arms up and then somersault towards the platform three and a half times. Wow. Your head, your head needs to be about 12 inches away, maybe 10 on the first mm -hmm. rotation and it would hit right on the whole forehead. Two divers yeah. had killed themselves at this point hitting the platform. Wow. She wanted to do this dive to have a degree of difficulty and there was only one woman, a Russian woman was doing it, but she wasn't making the rotations. If you push too far away from the platform, you can't make three and a half rotations. So we worked and worked and worked doing somersaults off the side of the pool deck because you get the first somersault started, you're fine. Yeah. So 
she went to China for the world championship. And it's a big sport in China with big leaderboards and stand. Everybody knows the standing. And none of the drills had done this dive. They weren't using the dive. So Michelle went in really optimistic. Talk about optimism. Yes. After the first five rounds, she was leading the competition. And nobody else was close, all the other competitors. Six dives, she nails. The leaderboard goes up and like there's a hush over the crowd. Seventh dive, she nails. Got one dive left, team with three and a half. She goes out to the end of the platform, turns around, puts her arms up, and she hears a noise. She thought somebody dropped like a teacup. So she just stands in a position and she hears more, more noise. And it kept on getting louder. People were starting to stomp their feet. Wow. It'd be really dangerous. I mean, yes. so the rules, allow, the rules allow you to step back and ask the referee to quiet the crowd. That wasn't Michelle Mitchell. <laughs> now, she had been doing this dive in practice for about eight and a half and nines. Okay, I watched her do the dive hundreds of times. Eight and a half, nine. She got the most aggressive start I've ever seen her. She kicked out early, which she really, really did, and piped it in, which is a beauty to behold. She got nine and a half from 110. Wow. And so what tools did she use in that moment where she said, I can do this with all the clutter? All the toughness training. Now, we quiet the mind. That's one of the first points we, we get past. Psycho-cybernetics is one of the things you get rid of the negative talk, get rid of even positive talk, and go to right brain of imagining the first move, the, the first move for, for musicians, the first phrase. Imagine that going well, and then your talent's going to take over, but that's where the left brain gets in the way and, and with noise and delay and hesitation. And, and I teach people how to send it, so she just held a position and just repictured the start. Wow. So I'm really interested in the mental rehearsal and visualization. It's what I actually did my dissertation. Yeah, on. I know. I saw. Yeah. <laughs> but what I find so interesting is a lot of people talk about this notion of just visualizing everything going well. But what I find interesting is, and I've read a lot about you know elite athletes and similar stories to this. I know I was reading about uh, Michael Phelps and, you know, that famous swim that he did at the Olympics where he couldn't see his goggles were, uh, there was water in them and he was, he was literally swimming blind, but he had visualized not just things going well, he spent the time to visualize all the things that could go wrong and how to persevere through them. And so this is so similar. It's like, she doesn't need the scenario to be absolutely perfect as she visualized it. She also was able to center her mind and visualize, and probably even more importantly, in a situation that was highly distracting and completely abnormal and not necessarily what she would have imagined to be the perfect scenario. So I think, can you talk Sure. To that and how important it is to, to visualize those situations too. Sure. I call it contingency planning. Mm, Something that yes. I learned in the military. You can't, you can't find on things going well all the time. In fact, right. I'm really against perfectionism. It's mm -hmm. it just for music yes. and athletes. My, my term is strive for excellence because you're not going to be perfect and, and it's not worth trying for. Because it, it never goes perfectly. Something's going to come up with live performances or crowd right. noise or an audition of can, uh, the panel talking amongst themselves or in a concert, candy wrappers, and you can't expect things to go well. 
So I do what's called adversity training, okay? okay? Besides visualizing, and that is subject people to the worst possible circumstances. I am so interested in this. I know that you used adversity training with your musicians and also you were using it with the Olympic training, but also you were using it at a class you were teaching at Juilliard. And this really piqued the interest of NPRs, all things considered. Exactly. So tell me about this. It seems counterintuitive to some people, but I actually, it's almost like I understand it from a clinical perspective because my first ever clinical work was working with OCD patients mm. and putting them through you. It was so counterintuitive. I would think you would want to <laughs> just not expose them as a normal human to things that brought them so much anxiety. But actually, what all the therapy was saying at the time is literally putting them through their fears and actually having them write their worst case scenarios out. So this also has to do with the idea you were literally putting people through, like you were doing things to distract them during oh, their yeah. performance, right? Tell, give us some examples of that. Well, this is desensitization. I mean, that's it. So my Juilliard class, I prepared them for this and focusing strategies, put attentional boundaries around them. Don't look at the distraction. Keep your eyes focused, task at hand, quiet your mind. Don't find fault. Just stay in a moment. All of that. Because this was their final exam. And we asked them to play, really, they each picked a piece, but we, it was degree of difficulty. They picked an easy piece, but nah, you know, I can't play that. So really tough piece. And we had them wait out in the hall for probably 10 minutes. And I had my crew, a whole crew of people that we had choreographed this because it had to be exactly the same for each person. So there's no favoritism. Right. And we had to, we had to choreograph this. And we would call them in one at a time, let them set up, and then the, then the games began. And the first one, first one was a piece of four by eight big sheet of plywood that we dropped right in front of them, like, wow. And that would get their adrenaline going. And, but everybody in the hall knew it. And then everybody knows because it happened 20 times. I had 20 students. Uh, we had a monitor in front of them and a video camera. So if they looked up, they saw themselves playing and heard themselves playing. It was very disconcerting. Yes. I had one of my other clients come in and play whatever they were playing, whatever piece they were playing, but slightly out of tune and off tempo, which drives musicians. Oh nuts. my gosh. We turned an AM radio station on and then played some FM stations. We dropped things on the floor. One of my partners had two laser pens and the music they were looking at, he, he was oh, dancing. No. Oh gosh. <laughs> <sighs> I prepared him all for this. I, I said, some abuse, but you know, Everybody nailed it. Absolutely everybody nailed it. So while all this adversity training is going on, they are thinking back and utilizing all the centering tools that you had been teaching throughout their whole course. And so yes, brilliant. Yes. The final was literally here. We're going to use it. Use all of the tools that we taught you in real life while we are literally distracting you and irritating you. If, if you get irritated, I got you. I, right. I got you. <laughs> it's, that's it. That's the key. Hang on. Hang on. Hang in. Never give up. That's what Churchill said. Never, ever, ever give up. It makes so much sense to me listening to your entire backstory, why you would be doing exactly what you're doing and with the population that you work with. Can you very briefly give a list out of what the biggest tools to center someone are? Sure. Well, first is centering and it's the secret weapon. I've never had a work with an Olympic athlete, Olympic champion, or musician that didn't win an audition who didn't know how to center. It's, it's really 
and, and the SWAT officers, it's proven effective. And how is the centering done? Is it by breath? Is it by centering the mind and asking yourself questions? It's a series of steps. It's tied to breathing. It's tied to eyes staying down so they don't go up into left brain, uh, relaxing key muscles, getting in touch with their center out of their left brain down into their center, a feeling place, not a talking place, more right brain and left. Then they imagine the first move of the inward three and a half or imagine the first bar of music. And once that's clear in their head, he who hesitates is lost, go for it. So the centering, the first step, the centering is before they're performing. It's right before they either get on stage or before they start. They're taking right. the beat to Be- center. Because at first it, it's seven steps and that takes about a minute. But after they learn and practice it to five steps and, mi- and half a minute to three steps in less than 10 seconds that they can do walking on stage or sitting in a room or whatever. I've got a centering course on my website Right. Winningonstage.com, that's that's a book on centering with audios yeah. and videos. And in two weeks, they can learn how to center. That's the main strategy. But the other ones are, are mental rehearsal. I'm a huge fan of mental rehearsal. I, I just talked to musicians today, percussionists, that before they step up, they'll get the clear energy over their head, feel the sticks, feel the flow, then go. Yes. A absolutely positive self-talk or mental quiet. Mm. Focusing strategies. Centering is a focusing strategy but much deeper focusing to go from awareness to focused awareness, which is attention. Focused attention is concentration. Focused concentration is one-pointed concentration. And that's what I teach people how to get in the zone. So does each person pick a focused point of concentration that works for them? Or is it something that you say that is like focus on something physical in the room? Or is it focus on a thought or a piece of the music? Or It, it depends on the person. Okay. okay. I work, I try to figure out each individual person's yeah. puzzle, if you will. That's why I use a series of assessments. I've got mm-hmm. a number of them that I use with athletes, different ones for musicians, different ones for business people. And they, they measure the important categories with a questionnaire, about 96 questions. Mm-hmm. It gives out a profile on categories such as concentration. But we break concentration down into distractibility Inner distractibility, external distractibility, ability to quiet your mind, ability to stay in the zone and sustain. So we break it out. Same thing with confidence. Confidence comes from doing the right things, from self-talk and from mental rehearsal. We measure all of those. We measure expectancy. We measure courage because courage is such a key thing. Yeah, if, grit and courage. If, if you act out of fear, you don't act. The two things I, I find most elite athletes and performers, the two things holding them back, negative thinking, and fear. Mm. That's universal. Right. And both of those can be conquered. It's not that tough. You can build courage. You can learn how to get positive with your self-talk, get optimistic, and quiet your mind. Yes. So these skills. And, and obviously resilience and mental toughness, we measure those and then we teach those. What happens to our bodies physically or mentally when we get nervous? Well, fight, fight. The adrenaline's released. And that, you know, produces physical, mental, and emotional symptoms. I was very interested in anxiety from an early age. When I was four, I was diagnosed with a speech impediment. Mm. I couldn't pronounce certain words, like, and I sounds. I couldn't pronounce the G-R sound. Mm. Been finding my last name was Smith. Mm-hmm. But when I had people ask my name, they laughed. Mm. And by the time I reached first grade, I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to be laughed at. I, I hated being called on in class. I never raised my hand. Mm. 
all through high school and college at West Point. I'd much rather jump out of a plane than give a speech. Right. My senior year at West Point, I had to give a short speech on my major and revolutionary warfare in Che Guevara. I couldn't sleep the whole week before. I, I went over my notes. I knew it like the back of my hand. I stood up. These are my classmates that I went through hell, heaven and hell with at West Point. Right. Buddies. You know, rooting for me. I got up there. I, I, my flesh, my, my heart started pounding. I went absolutely blank. I couldn't remember a word. I started stuttering. I've never stuttered in my life. Sweats pouring off me. I still know what I said or how I did. I, got, I guess I got a passing grade. In graduate school, my master's, I thought I'd, I'd solve it. I just, I didn't have to do it with a master's in forensic science. You didn't have to do any. I wound up in San Diego and I thought I've got to address this. So I went to Toastmasters. Mm. All I have to do is sit around a conference room and bring a brown bag lunch, say we've um, and all the other scared people. So they're going around the conference table. Yeah, yeah. Before they got to me, I left. I couldn't deal with it. So then I started my PhD program and I discovered centering, my salvation. How amazing that you are able to bring that to your clients because you know what it's like. Well, so I, so I, I've learned how to love speaking and I've done like, yes, I was going to ask you that I've done keynote speakers, you know, and, and thousands of people. And I love it. It's an adrenaline rush. And I'm there. And the first thing I say is I'm really nervous, <laughs> but I, I interpret it as excitement. It's, it's yes. positive energy. And that's the thing. It's how you interpret the same yes. symptoms. Like my heart is racing. Oh my God. Well, no, I'm okay. I'm pumped up. Here we go. Rock and roll. I don't like to use microphones. I, I, I will blow out a microphone. I want to project my voice. I yes. want to demonstrate. I want to let them feel that energy. Yes. Well, you actually did a TED educator talk yeah. and it has over 31 million views. Oh, wow. And that's amazing. I love that you just brought up the interpretation. That's been a theme of course, in my practice, I think the greatest tool is perspective. Um, we all own it. We possess it. It's part of us. It's just how are we going to use it? But it's been a theme in my, obviously, my optimism, resiliency in the Looking Up podcast. And one of the people that I interviewed a few weeks back did a TED Talk and wrote many books on how to make stress your friend. And a lot of it was about literally that, you know, stress and anxiety and interpreting it as not this is something that is super bad and is going to kill you because that's all we hear all the time. But like, how interesting, maybe this is this amazing thing that is telling me I need help or telling me I need to center myself, or it's a tool and a resource that we have. It tells us something about ourselves. It's a message, which I think is so interesting. So much of my athletes and musicians has to do with reaction time and real speed and and what happens? And it happens really fast. And it's a sequence from perception to interpretation or thought to action. Mm -hmm. And the example is a musician walks into a new room where they've never played before. And as soon as their heel hits the ground, they have a sense of the acoustics. Mm -hmm. Is it a dead room or a live room? Mm -hmm. It happens instantaneously. But then comes the thought, the interpretation. This is where optimism comes in. This room is dead. I can't play here. And then they play defensively. The correct interpretation is, yes, yeah, I've played in dead rooms before. I can nail this. That's it. Happens yeah. really quick. And then the action follows. 
but it's that interpretation, whether it's optimistic or pessimistic, that determines the outcome in that nanosecond. And that is the point, that three-step you talked about. The interpretation is the first point which you have control over. Exactly. The first part you don't. You don't have control over whether it's a dead room or a live room, but that's the point where you have control over, which then controls the action piece. So the last question goes very hand in hand with the title of this podcast, and it is, Dr. Green, what is looking up? So tell us about some things that you are working on right now. I know you're writing something, which is is amazing. Tell us about the course that's out right now on centering. And then besides that, just a a short notion of what you're hopeful about and what's looking up for you. Thanks for asking. I'm finishing up this book called Train Your Hero, One Month to Peak Functioning. It's basically how to get in the zone on, on command. And it ties together Joseph Campbell, The Hero's Journey, Jungian Psychology, being willing to look at your dark side because there's hidden talent there, and understanding peak functioning, the zone, uh, Dr. C, one of my favorite books is Flow. It's, it's getting in flow, peak experience. Maslow's self-actualized people have more peak experiences. So it's combining Maslow, Jung, uh, Freud, Flow, uh, Dr. C., and Joseph Campbell to reach peak functioning in one month. I'm just about done. I've been writing it since June. I'm, I've had several musicians read it and everybody's read it on their next audition. Amazing, incredible. On my website, I've got assessments that people can take them and set up a session with me and, and have a half hour and then I can give them a direction or set up a series of one-on-one. I'm actually going to do this with you. Wonderful. And the thing that I'm working on right, right now that I'm really excited about is I'm starting to work with video gamers on focus. Esports. Esports. I've, I've designed two assessments, an individual player assessment and a team assessment. Brand new. I had gamers help me with the language so it sounds like I know what I'm doing. And I don't, <laughs> I, I don't play games, but I know what I can offer them, which is focus, habits, sleep, communications between players, military strategy from my military background, because they don't have a clue about military strategies. And I have a lot to offer them. And there's no other sports psychologist that has taken the step to get into e-gaming. So this is my next venture is this. And I'm really excited about it. I'm going to start doing videos uh, for the gamers and start training them. I'm going to start working with professional teams. uh, That's amazing. Because they don't necessarily have what I have to offer. And this is just a new kind of exciting venture uh, for me. That is so cool. What are you most hopeful about? I'm hopeful that this is going to end, that we're going to be by it. And and for my musicians, that they can be better musicians. They have more time than ever to practice and refine their skills. I've got courses for them, like a a power learning course. I've also got a book club where I'm going through some really neat books. I'm looking at them right now. You know most of these books, I'm sure. But a lot of people don't. Well, I think that is incredible because kind of how you started in all this on that volleyball court on the beach was your partner giving you these books that you stayed up all night and read. And that seems like it changed the course of your entire life. So how we always end this podcast, we end off looking up with my optimism deck of cards. Things are looking up. Uh, There's 52 of them. Each one has a science-based or holistic prompt or suggestion that actually increases optimism and resilience. I love it. I love it. I love it. If we were together, you'd pick one yourself. But since we're not, I'm picking one for you, but totally at random. So we'll see which one you get. Seven of clubs. Seven of clubs. (laughs) 
<laughs> just this one. Let's see. I swear, every time I pick a card for someone I'm interviewing, it's just the right card. This one is your card. Big or small, without judgment, simply name three things you've done well today. So at some point today, by yourself, write it down or say it out loud. Just three things that you've done well. I had a great session with a Russian pianist living in Paris, getting ready for some competitions. And the first round is, is recordings. And I'm getting ready for, she doesn't do recording well. Recordings, she likes live performances, not just sitting in a room playing for a recorder. Right. But I'm, I'm going to get her ready. Good. Uh, that, that one we did before uh, with, with the percussionists. Yeah. That was a bomb fact. Oh, wow. I, uh, that was good. And this. this, this yes, this you've, been you've aced delightful. it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for being on and a guest on Looking Up. Thank you. I learned so much and I really hope to keep in touch because actually... I was serious. I think I'm going to take these assessments and reach out to you to, to be a client. That'd be wonderful. I'd love it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for today. This is delightful. Appreciate it. This is great. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Looking Up. For more optimistic content, follow me at Dr. Deepika Chopra. For more info on how to get your very own Things Are Looking Up optimism deck of cards, head to thingsarelookingup.com. If you like what you hear and you want to support the show, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Our theme music is Me and Shaw Day by Tommy, courtesy of Terrible Records. I'm your host, Dr. Deepika Chopra, and I'll see you next Monday for your weekly dose of optimism.